Heavenly Father, thank you for this preparation day. Thank you that the Sabbath is drawing nigh. Thank you that you have blessed this encampment. Thank you that you have blessed Jim as he shared information with us. And continue now to guide and direct. And may we indeed be faithful, faithful stewards of all that you placed in our hands. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Here's something to think about in a race. And this happens pretty much in every... There's a, whether it's a short race, a 5K, whether it's a half marathon, a marathon, a triathlon, it doesn't matter. There is a pace for all of us that is sustainable. That we can, we can start running and, or biking or whatever, and we can say, okay, I can do this for 20 minutes, I can do this for two hours, I can do this all day, whatever it is. The longer it is, usually the slower it is that it's sustainable. There's, but there's a sustainable rate... And then there comes a time when we come to the end of the race that if we maintain that sustainable rate, when we cross the finish line, we're going to cross the finish line, we're going to still have gas in the tank. All right. And the, the idea when we race is we want to get across the finish line just like these guys. And when we cross the finish line, that last step or two, we don't even have the energy. It's just momentum alone that's carrying us over the finish line. And when you cross the line, that's it. You're gassed. You are laying down on the sidewalk or on the asphalt, catching your breath. Uh, and I had, it was interesting, I did that the very first race. I was a sophomore in an academy. I had never run a mile in my life. They asked me to run it for the class, uh, whatever, class, what do they call it, uh, field day or whatever. Said, sure, okay. And I ended up uh, just uh, staying behind the pack four times around, and then at the very end, just saying, if I'm going to win, i got to just drop the hammer. And, and just like this guy, you know, you pass at the very end. And I've made that a commitment every time I train, every time I race. That's how I want to finish, because I want to finish strong. When we think about our finances, same sort of thing. We have a sustainable rate that we can use our finances. But there comes a point where we say, you know what, what do I need to do? So when I cross the finish line, there's nothing left in the tank. The idea that how do I transition that wealth, because we can't take it with us. In the same way that that energy has no value for me as soon as I'm over the finish line, our wealth has no value for us when we come to that last day uh, and we, we pass away. So how do we transition our wealth? How do we start making the plans now so when we get to the end of life, we've made the right choices, the right decisions uh, to have that used in a better way? So with that, I'm going to ask Vern if you would come up. He's going to be talking to us a little bit about uh, estate planning, uh, probate, some things like that and can take us over the finish line with our seminar this week. Thank you for the good lead-in. Um, it reminds me of my favorite will, which is being of sound mind. I spent it all. You know, and uh, that way, it is, you know, what causes probate is assets. If you don't have any assets, you don't have any probate. Uh, but unfortunately, some of us have no idea when we might die. I don't think any of us do. And uh, so you plan. You plan. You try to, there's a, a reason you end up starting to take out principal and things like that towards the uh, end of the, your, your life and when you have various assets. But nobody wants probate. Probate in Michigan is really quite good. We have formal versus informal. We have um, uh, supervised versus unsupervised, and I always go for the unsupervised informal. 
That's as low as you can get on the totem pole. It does the job. Uh, you don't have in, a lot of involvement, and it's the least costly for the estate. Uh, so I do that, but obviously um, uh, dying and having no assets means no probate at all. Even if you have a will, you have to go through probate. A will must go through probate to be useful. Uh, that means you die testate having a will. If you die without a will, it's called intestate. That's just terms there. Uh, but wills, to be effective as wills, must be um, probated. Now, a will now, it used to be it was of no value but uh, if it wasn't probated, but now you can have a will and have it not probated. Maybe you have no assets, or for some reason, there's no reason to probate. You can, uh, all your assets were held in another name or uh, something like that, like, like a trust. But we now have in Michigan uh, what's called funeral representatives. Have any of you heard of that term? It's about two years old. Because um, it used to be we had trouble with people. Well, this side of the family says cremate. This one says do not. This one says bury with the children from the first marriage. Somebody else says will bury with the children of the second marriage. There's all kinds of problems. And it took a lot of court time going uh, through the litigation to resolve some of these issues. So the legislature came up with this um, uh, funeral arrangements statute, and you have to have you have to be 18 years of old of age, and then um, sign a document with two witnesses, just like a will. A will requires two witnesses to be valid, and so so does a uh, uh, funeral arrangement. And um, but it also provides that a funeral representative designation. If is contained in an individual's will, the will is not required to be admitted to probate for the funeral representative designation to be valid. So you can have a will that is not probated, but still it can contain a funeral representative designation. And I recommend that very highly that you put that in. I'm now putting it in every will that I draft, a designation of a funeral representative. The only, there's only one catch to that, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it may make people that want to be the funeral representative have second thoughts, and that is a funeral representative uh, that actually acts as a funeral representative must ensure payment for the costs of the disposition through a trust, insurance, commitment, etc. Gotcha! You know, in other words, they're, they're protecting the funeral homes, uh, make sure they get paid. So if you're going to be the, the big honcho to come in and make the decisions on the body disposition or whatever. That means you may be also signing up responsibility for the uh, uh, cost of the funeral. So one of the uh, most used methods of avoiding probate is to put all of your assets into a living trust. Now a living trust is a legal entity. It is separate from you. So if you put all of your assets into a living trust, you own nothing. Therefore, when you die, there is nothing to probate. However, uh, during your lifetime, you're the beneficiary of that trust. You're also the uh, um, uh, grantor and, uh, and the trustee. So you can uh, control your assets just like you own them. In fact, uh, it's almost synonymous with owning them uh, for a lot of provisions, like the, 
the senior citizen tax provisions for real estate, all that flows through. It all flows through to the, uh, uh, to the individual from uh, the uh, self-trusted uh, revocable living trust. So that, that's important, but for the uh, trust to avoid probate, all of your assets have to be in the trust. Um, I had a I got a call from a university, a very wealthy university on the far west coast. You may be able to guess what it is. Um, and they had uh, a doctor that had died, had lived in Michigan, but then moved out there. And uh, he thought he had everything in his trust, but he missed one bank account. So I said, well, if it's a, just a small minor amount or whatever, we... Uh, we just let it go. It wouldn't be worth going through probate because you'd have to open up an estate. It's in his name alone. There were no survivors or anything else on it. And, but there's $43,000 there. So that was worth going after. So we opened up probate, uh, transferred the account to the trust at the university, and then went through all the uh, procedures you have to go through with the probate, which, you know, it was very unonerous, uh, but it's something that had to be done cost a few hundred dollars in filing fees and uh, legal fees, that type of thing. But um, a, uh, a living trust is a very, very useful thing if it's worth it. Now, a, a will goes through probate, but a will costs substantially less than a living trust because by the time you prepare the living trust, which is probably 40 pages instead of four pages, uh, and you transfer all the property and all your bank accounts. I mean, if you have uh, various pieces of property and you uh, need to put them in the trust, every one of them will require a deed. So you see the fees can start adding up. My folks thought they'd really be nice to me, and they wanted a living trust, but uh, they knew I was too busy to do it, so they said, we'll get somebody else to do it. And I said, well, fine, that, that's good, because you don't have the issues with... Uh, you know, undue influence and that type of thing. So they did it. But then they amended it seven times. Oh, guess who got to do all the amendments? You know? <laughs> so it, uh, but, you know, it, it, was, it was more work. They didn't need one because um, uh, there's other things that we had put in place by then where it really wasn't necessary. Um, Michigan has something. I'm just going to talk about it so you know it's in existence. Uh, it's like a year and a half old um, uh, in Michigan. It's the uh, Michigan Domestic a Asset Protection Act. Has anybody heard of that? You know, you hear about these uh, trusts. Well, I want a trust that's going to beat my creditors. Well, this will do it. Michigan became the 17th state to adopt the uh, uh, Credit Protection uh, Act where uh, creditors can't get your assets. Um, however, neither can you. You know, I mean, that's basically the, the sad side of it. Um, you, know, you know, you set it up, you're allowed to get the income from it. You can get an annuity from it based on the original amount, but it can't exceed 5% of the original value of the trust. Uh, if you need the money, you can't get it. You can buy your death documents, namely your will, say who does get it, but you can't get it while you're alive. Uh, there's things you can say, things you can do. You can retain a power to direct the investments, veto distributions, replace trustees, uh, 
But it's, uh, basically you can say what can't be done to preserve the principle and the integrity of the uh, investments, but it doesn't say that you get it. You get it when you, your estate can get it, and it can't be to your creditors of your estate either. Um, so that is possible. Now, these are what have been largely the business of offshore entities, banks, Bermuda, uh, Cayman Islands, all those places have had these. And the uh, Wall Street Journal had an article about them. Uh, here's, here's just a quote from 2003. Keep in mind, that's a while back. Uh, Asset protection trusts don't come cheap. And now this is an offshore one they're talking about here. Uh, but they set anywhere from twenty dollars to $50,000 to set up. Now, being onshore, you can do it cheaper than that, but it's still going to probably run five dollars to $10,000 to get a trust set up. And then it's going to run anywhere from two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 a year for maintenance. So you don't do this. And then, of course, you can't get your assets, so you don't want to put all your assets into the trust. So we're talking about multimillionaires I saw one article that said you don't want to even consider it unless you've got at least $5 million you're worried about. So it's a very limited group. But just when you say, that, well, it's in a trust so creditors can't get it, that is now possible in Michigan. It used to be I could say, no, you don't understand trust. That's impossible. But it is possible. But it has the, uh, the issues that almost wipe the, the whole, ish, uh, whole thing out completely. Um, but it's, it's a very, you can beat your creditors, but uh, you can't be the one that enjoys it. So that's, uh, it's, it's a, a balancing, it depends if you want to, you know, if you pay, pay the whole thing out in attorney's fees, that's not bad. You know, it sounds good for the attorneys, uh, or the CPAs, there's a lot of CPAs involved uh, administering those too. So, um, Life insurance beneficiaries do, uh, do not go, your life insurance policies do not go through probate. That's one thing you can count on if you have a life insurance policy. Anything that has a beneficiary is probably not going to go through probate unless you don't name the beneficiary. Now, I don't care how good the form is and the structure is, if you don't follow through and name the beneficiaries, it's going to go through probate. If you have life insurance, you die. Uh, the proceeds come, there's no beneficiary, it goes to probate. Uh, but life insurance, you can have uh, primary. I also recommend having contingent beneficiaries. Somebody dies and it goes to their children or you split it among the survivors. And that's important to make that designation on any uh, beneficiary setup. If somebody dies, uh, you know, if you have three children, one of them dies. Well, do you want the other two to get one half each of your estate, even if it's a will or insurance or whatever, or do you want the children of the deceased child to get that share? You know, there's, there's two main uh, issues there, and you have to decide which way you want it to go. But life insurance uh, beneficiary excludes it. One that a lot of us uh, are involved with, and uh, Unfortunately, I am now personally involved in it, is a retirement beneficiaries. If you have a retirement plan, 403B, 401K, IRA, things like that, you have beneficiaries. And it goes to the beneficiaries that does not go through probate. So if you want to build up those funds that you have, it's a good idea. It defers the, the ta income taxes. It doesn't eliminate the taxes, but it defers it 
till when you want to take it out after you retire, although you have minimum distribution requirements that make you take it out at some point uh, when you hit a certain age, uh, which unfortunately is in my rearview mirror. Um, so, uh, but you know, you have to take it out uh, as you go. But uh, retirement plans and re deferred compensation plans, you don't have to worry about that question. Okay, the question is, um, what about somebody that uh, dies before they start taking the benefits and then uh, what happens at that point with the beneficiaries? Um, the whole, it, it depends. That's, you know, that's the big legal answer to so many questions. It depends. And we're not talking about senior citizen aides either. Um, but the, um, you know, generally it has to be cleaned out and uh, withdrawn uh, within a year after death. However, it can be extended depending on who the beneficiary is. It can be set up so it would go, uh, be, uh, go become a spousal IRA. There's just a lot of possibilities. And also with charity, it can be taken out by September 30 of the year following the year of death and uh, you know, avoid that. So uh, that's a good question. It happens, it is provided for uh, going many different directions depending on you know the further facts involved, but uh, yeah, people have thought of that. They're they're trying to you know your planner should be able to help you with that. You probably do. A, you see that question now and again yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, and there there are provisions for um, you know planning around that depending on what you want to do. So, and you'd rather have you decide it than have the government decide it. So we're seeing more of that every day. Um, so the uh, yeah the the uh, deferred compensation plans are a great way to uh, get as much as you can in it, and then uh, defer the taxes on it, and then have it not go through probate. There are other methods: um, pay on death, like with bank accounts. Uh, you could put them in joint names with the survivor getting anything, everything uh, upon death. But you may not want that person to be able to write checks or have an ownership interest. Plus, if a person can get, uh, and this has happened too often, mother put a uh, son's name on her bank account with her so he could take care of her and pay the bills, and when uh, she died, it would be his. Well, he had some creditors, and his creditors came and put a lien on and took her entire bank account. That was not in the plans, but that was legally required to be done by the bank. Uh, so if you have a co-owner, it's treated differently than if you have a pay on death. Because until you die, the uh, beneficiary has no interest. But when you die, it goes to the beneficiary without going through probate. So that is uh, very useful for bank accounts and other instruments. You also have something that's used more in bonds and other things, transfer on death. It's the same thing. You have somebody that doesn't have an interest until you die and then it automatically goes to them. Um, you can also set up uh, some things with life estates. Um, for instance, uh, a, a house. You can say, okay, I am going to live in the house. I'm going to deed it to my son 
and I'm going to live in my house. And once I die, then it becomes his. In other words, he has a remainder interest, I have a life interest. Instead of splitting property down the middle, one going one way and one the other, this is splitting it horizontally. While I'm alive, I am the 100% owner. I get to deduct the taxes. I have to pay the taxes, uh, all of that. But when I die without going through probate, it goes automatically to my son. Now, that's good. And when you record that deed, it's a matter of record. And um, the only problem has come up in the past is some more of this thing with, with creditors. That is, uh, some creditors, say my son has creditors, and they're, they want to get paid. Well, they may just file a lien against the house while I'm alive. They can't do anything, but they know my son has a remainder interest that he's going to get, or his estate will get if he dies before I do. But when I die, it's going to him or his estate because I have irrevoc irrevocably deeded it to him, a warranty deed. And so that, uh, that has discouraged some people from doing that. They say, look, there's a, uh, a chance that your creditors could get it. Um, and so we're not, I really don't want this property to be tied up. If I decide to sell the property and move to uh, um, Florida or something like that, um, i got to get my son's permission because he's got to sign the deed when I sell the house. He has a remainder interest. It's, uh, there's a problem there. To the rescue comes the ladybird deed. Now, it sounds like something from Lyndon Johnson's wife. But it's not. I've researched that because I thought, yeah, I'm sure she had to do this to avoid having to deal with her husband. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's not. It was. It's not related to uh, to her at all. With the ladybird deed, uh, I could deed the property to my son, but I retain not only a life estate to live there, but a power of appointment to revoke that gift. So I can. I have a string. That means I can pull it back and undo it. So if he gets creditors and they're lining up, and I've already uh, faced this with one client, uh, you just file a quick claim deed, deeding it back, and it's done. It's, it's totally undone. So it's basically revocable because you can revoke the effect. That way you could still sell the house. I could just say, okay, um, I retained a, uh, this uh, power of appointment, and I am appointing it back to me, and I'm going to sell the house and use the, uh, uh, use the proceeds to travel the world, or you know, whatever I'm, I'm going to do. So um, uh, the ladybird deeds are the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, that's great. Yeah, limited liability companies are also really great, but uh, the, these ladybird deeds are either going... Uh, very quickly, a lot of people are, are, are doing these. So, Whether you have a trust or, a, um, or go through probate or if some of these other methods, uh, um, but it's mainly either going through probate or having a trust, you need to put a notice in the paper of actual, uh, if there's any debts. You know, if you have a debt, speak now within the next four months, or you are, uh, uh, you know, you're out. And um, it used to be you could publish it in the paper, and you didn't need to give actual notice. I mean, you go in and, and say, hey, okay, I know 
this person is owed money by the decedent that whose estate I'm handling, and I'm going to publish this in a newspaper. I used to use the Three Oaks Gazette, which is you know down near Berrien Springs, but nobody read that. And but it was a legal newspaper, so I, I used that. But um, now the law has changed to where you have to give actual notice to known creditors, which is much more fair. So you publish in the paper. If you know that there are creditors and who they are, you give them notice, and then they have to file the claims. It's not an automatic executing uh, situation. So that takes care of, um, of creditors. You do the publication. Uh, if you have small estates, very small estates, you don't need to publish. It's just a matter of going in and filing papers with the court and then um, you know, walking away, and uh, uh, that, that's taken care of. Um, and, um, yes? Okay, small estate's going to be like $20,000 plus the cost of funeral, and the $20,000 is indexed. Um, you know, so you, you're doing this small estate. Now, there's another device out there. It's uh, not used uh, that often because I think some banks and other companies don't like it. That is an affidavit of transfer. You, there's a form. Uh, it's a court form. You fill it out. It's an affidavit, and I have used it and said, look, I am the son of my mother who died. Of equal uh, level of heirship with me is my brother, and I list him. And uh, she died owning this bank account, and I am demanding that you transfer that bank account to me. And um, that... That's supposed to happen. Some banks want more than that, get more formal. But this, uh, this affidavit of transfer is also very useful in uh, trying to get things wrapped up without actually having to go through the probate court. Um, there's, uh, oh, there's another thing uh, uh, that uh, we have seen uh, finally get passed. That's the Medicaid clawback. Now, this only involves if you have Medicaid uh, issues where the individual that died has received Medicaid. Um, the government passed a rule uh, a few years ago that if you received Medicaid and your estate had assets when you died, the government could come in and get all their money back. So Medicaid was just basically a loan. You know, they, and uh, uh, Michigan fought that probably harder than any other state, saying, look, it's, it's supposed to be a benefit to the people. Medicaid is a, a government uh, subsidy program. And um, uh, Michigan fought it and was the 50th out of the 50 states to adopt that. You know, the, finally the government said, hey, look, we're, you've got to do it because we're dragging our feet. Just everything you could throw in the way. And so then when the uh, Michigan regulations went in to be approved by the federal government, it was like 200 pages. So it took them a year or two to you know, get through everything. Finally, uh, it was up and we had to face it. But the, um, the statute says the, end, the decedent's estate. Well, is that taxable estate? Is that whatever they own? Is that probate estate? So the Michigan rule says that this clawback, this Medicaid clawback, applies only to the probate estate. And that has survived. So far, the courts have said that's okay. So if it doesn't go through probate, the federal government can't take it back. 
So that's a, just another issue to keep in mind in dealing with some of these uh, um, Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, the other issues. Uh, there's also a pecking order of uh, who gets paid. Uh, I won't bother going through that because it's uh, obviously if there's not enough uh, money in the estate to, for everybody to get paid, you've got to have some order of payback. And uh, funeral expenses and that type of thing are number one on the list. Uh, yes? Yeah. Okay, the, the uh, uh, um, Medicaid deed, or the, the, the ladybird deed, you don't have the, uh, it doesn't go through your probate estate. Nothing, you know, if it's in a ladybird deed, it goes to the person that you deed it to. In my case, I deed it to my son, uh, withholding a life estate and also keeping back the power to change it. Uh, if I die, that does not go through my estate. Therefore, that property is not subjected to the clawback because it's not in my probate estate. So, yes. So, the clawback is a five-year, right? Yes. With, uh, well, whether you get Medicaid at all is a five-year look back. Five right. So, if I do that right there, two years prior to Six years would be better, absolutely. Um, we've had all kinds of issues with that. Uh, it was three years, and they kicked it to five years, and uh, they didn't. Um, our congressman, well, when I was in Berrien Springs, Congressman Fred Upton, I was working with his office on, on that uh, look-back period because I wanted to know how it connected to charitable giving. You know, because if you make a gift, I said, well, that can't apply to charitable giving. And I gave the example. Uh, see, not only did they expend it, uh, extend it from three to five years, but the period that the penalty, uh, the time the period started used to be when you made the gift. Say I get $5,000 a month. Um, uh, to, you know, that, that's the amount that a nursing home would... Uh, um, you know, uh, charge for admission and, you know, your upkeep and that type of thing. Uh, if I give $5,000 a month to the church, it used to be that would run in one month and my $5,000 time penalty would be up because it was $5,000 a month. And, um, you know, then I could make another gift. Well, what they did was they changed not only the look-back period from three to five, but they also changed that so any gift you made during the five years did not start to run until they're all accumulated and you applied for Medicaid then it started so for five years uh, if I gave um, ten thousand dollars to the church for each of five years normally there'd be no penalty at all but then it, uh, it, by the way they calculated it now that fifty thousand dollars ten thousand times five thousand doesn't start running until I apply for Medicaid. So that's $5,000, that's a 10-month look back. At that point, I'm without Medicaid or help for uh, 10 months, where normally there'd been nothing. So there's just a lot of technical things that they, they must messed up in that. But when I pointed it out to uh, Jane Williams, uh, Fred's aide on that, there was silence on the other end of the line. She said, we never thought of that. How can you not think of that? But anyway, um, 
So I have a letter from the uh, U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee Chairman that it wasn't intended to apply. But I'm still looking for a case. If anybody hears of something like that, I'd love to go to court on that. But uh, okay, are there any questions? These are just some ideas that uh, hopefully you you know use or raise some questions to talk to your advisors to see, hey, would this work or would that work or how would it go? Gene, just clarify something. So sure. there's a Medicaid look back, right. which looks back over five years uh, when you apply for Medicaid, and there you can have a penalty period where you have to pay for your care to the equivalent of what you've given away, not just to charity, but to your kids or whatever. Right now it applies, right, even to Christmas presents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, then uh, there's a clawback, which after you die, they can go back into your state and, and take money. Is, is it true then that the lady protects against uh, the look back and the clawback? In other words, if if the lady bird deed is on your homestead, mm -hmm. is, is it true then that your homestead is protected against Medicaid loan and getting your hands up? Because you have to spend down to two thousand dollars, right? That a little bit. Okay. Yes, it's well be, because the fact that um, the Ladybird deed in no way gets into your probate estate. There's no clawback, so that's taken care of, and you you wouldn't have uh, Medicaid money to have to pay back if you hadn't qualified originally, which would mean outside of the the five year gift prohibitions. So. So, but say for instance, um, correct me if this is not. Let's say I have twenty thousand dollars in the bank, mm -hmm. and I own a homestead that I live in. Right. Um, before Medicaid will give me money, that twenty thousand has to be spent down to two thousand. Right. But they can't go after my house. That is correct. Because that's my homestead. Right. But if I own the second property, ah. a cottage, or if I have a rental property, could they then? Go after that, not a clawback, but while I'm living, before I would actually get benefits. That may prohibit you from getting benefits, yes. But once, because you don't hit a clawback situation until it's something that you have received, you've qualified, which means spent down to 2000 to be able to get money to begin with. Because the payback uh, is only when you've already gotten it, you know, been, been qualified and paid. Benefits. Right. But yes, if you have multiple properties, you only have one homestead. And, um, so that, uh, that could affect me getting uh, benefits in the first place. Right, your qualification Not is... Not the homestead, but... Yeah, the countable asset issue would yeah. would be up, up front. Yeah. Yes, sir? You mentioned something about credit. Should say, in my happy example, I'll support $100,000. We have two parents, and the parents say, I want to pass this on to my two children. Okay. So they go ahead and they do, well, I contribute to this thing, but they end up putting it all for me. Okay. So now each one, I mean, do the math, $25,000 or whatever. Say a creditor comes back after one of the children, and the creditor is owed 40000 Can he go ahead and Try to collect forty thousand from a hundred thousand dollar asset. Uh, if if it's for sale, could be held up, or is he limited to the portion that they 
person would have, which is twenty five thousand, until the parent could pass away, and then those numbers would change. Does the do the four people own it as joint tenants with rights as survivorship, or do they own it as tenants in common? Okay. Well, if they, if it's joint survivorship, that means one of them could end up owning the whole thing. So therefore, they probably would hold out for the whole forty as far as the lien against the property. Uh, if it's tenants in common, it's just there's only a one undivided one fourth interest, and they should be limited. Now this could vary from state to state too, but they should be limited to um, the twenty five thousand dollar one fourth share. Right, because that's all the share is, and uh, if the uh, if somebody died and that was uh, you know not designated to go to somebody else, it'd end up going through probate. I mean, they really are owners. It's just an undivided ownership. Thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. Right. Right. Well, that's one of the reasons that the um, uh, the will will work in it. You know, work. If somebody has a copy of your will, if you show it to somebody, as soon as somebody sees a copy of your will, it tells you who the. Uh, well, yeah, it can be. Yep, yep, yep. It's good. Right. Yeah. Keep it, and it's important the families talk to each other about this. Yes. Is there a limit on how long after the person dies before probate starts? Probate. You look at the uh, um, creditors. I think are limited to three years, uh, but sometimes you end up probating, especially if there's real estate involved. You got a clear title. So you could end up going back 15 years. Um, sometimes you can do that. If you get a title company to just write a policy saying, look, the statute of uh, limitations for contracts, the max is six years. Therefore, um, it's well past that. Go ahead, please issue a title insurance policy insuring it even without probate. But yeah, that, that can... You can get in, in trouble, if especially if there's a family feud at some point down the line. Um, you, you can go back a ways, but uh, generally you, you hit a certain bridge at three years and you hit another one at six, and it should be able to, uh, to not have to, to worry about that. You know, if somebody has another person's will and that other person dies, if they have the original, they're supposed to send it into the court within a reasonable period of time. Now, it's amazing how many people start looking through files and find wills that are there from somebody that died 15 years ago. I mean, it's, what do you do at that point? Well, I usually send them in anyway, because there's no filing fee for that, which is a rarity. But um, that's... The first thing happens if John Doe has a will, mm -hmm. and nobody finds it. And so he dies in test state, so to speak, and his property is then distributed according to the Laws. And then they find the will a couple of years after everything has been divided. Too late, or would, would it go back to court and some of those assets would need to be redirected? Um, it's, if it's within three years, it might go back to court. I want to check that out. But yes, oh my goodness. We, 
that, that, that's a major headache. Uh, there, there's a lady had her um, had her estate plan with the Michigan Conference. You heard of them? Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, she died, and she lived in a house in the middle of Detroit. Really, a bad place. And they took her body out the front. They're breaking in the back door already. I mean, it was, it was bad. And uh, we finally got the household for $2,000, and we're thankful to do that. Um, so her son was from California. He came in and was literally shoveling the, in, the contents of the house out. And he called me and said, hey, I just found a receipt. It's six or seven years old, but it's for a safety deposit box. And I said, okay. Um, I said, we've already probated the will. We're almost done with it. Under the will, the local church got 95%, the conference got 5%. And so keep that in mind, because uh, I said, well, I'll call the bank, see what's, uh, you, know, you know, what the deal is with that, because that's, that's really old. And they said, oh, yeah, no, that's still alive. And it's a big box, and she's got two of them. I thought, oh, my goodness. So, uh, of course, nobody knew where the key was, so we had to have somebody come in and drill it out. That meant the Wayne County treasurer was going to come down and make sure we didn't run off with anything. So we, we had the ceremony down there at the bank, opened it up, and here's another will and a trust, which just ironically gave 95% to the conference and only 5% to the local church. So that pastor was sent someplace in the Upper Peninsula fairly quickly. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so we had to start probate re again because we told the court there was $2,000 um, uh, in it. And now we found World War II Liberty Bonds worth a quarter of a million dollars. And here she lived in this, this place. And so... Uh, um, so I had to file a new inventory, of course, amended inventory. And then I get a call from the judge's clerk and said, Judge wants to see you. So what did I do? He said, well, you know, you don't have a bond because it's $2,000, but now you've got over a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, he wants to talk to you about a bond. And so I went down and I said, you know, he said, we've got to get a bond. I said, well, Your Honor, this, you know, it's a church organization. They know what they're doing. It was Wyman Wager. I don't know if you've run across that name yet. He was a, a, one of your predecessors. And uh, uh, I said, he's, he's a good guy. He's a certified trust officer and gave the judge a whole pitch. And now, now everybody's running off with money these days. We've got to get a, get a bond. And okay, he's the judge. So I started to leave the office. He said, what church was that again? I said, Seventh-day Adventist. He thought, he said, do you have a church and a school out in Plymouth? And I said, yes, we do. He said, do you sell fruit out there? <laughs> and, and I said, well, yes, yes. And so, you know, students sell, raise money, et cetera. He says, well, my wife buys that. He says, those are the juiciest oranges and the grapefruit. And he started really going, he said, you know, he hollered out his secretary, we don't need a bond on this case. So, <laughs> by your fruits, you shall know them, you know. <laughs> and so it saved three or $400 for a bond uh, on that case. So it was just, uh, so, you know, the spirit moves, even in Wayne County courts. <laughs> so, yes. 
living, but this is a living that money comes out of her, her trust to cover her expenses. But in the nursing home, they said that it's going to be like $10,000 a month until they clean out all of the money that we service. I think it's like 2000 in the bank. 2000 that's it. And then they will take like 60% of her um, social security every month. So they're just trying to wipe her out in a very short period of time. She's got like 200000 but my question is, can they take it because it's in a trust, or can they only take what's in like her regular savings and checking? Is it protected, or is it fair game for the vultures? It's fair game for the vultures. If she can get it, the vultures can get it. That's basically what it amounts to. And she can get everything that's in her trust. She can get everything that's in her sole name. So her creditors can get all that. Yeah, that's... So how do you protect it from, from them? I mean, is there any way to do that? Well, if you've got liquid cash there, it's, uh, you know, you can start gift, gifting, but you've got to be five years ahead of the game on that. It, it's, it's very difficult when you get that kind of money to, um, to uh, um, get, get help. But no, they will... You know, uh, a policy, there are policies, insurance policies that would help cover that. But no, when you hit that where you need the big bucks and it's, and it's not there except in your own bank account, that's a very unpleasant thing to watch happen. Well, I was kind of hoping for some kind of um, insurance policy that would protect her from well, there, there are people that specialize in that. I'm not one of them, but uh, uh, in trying to protect it, you know, some, there's a, also a half a loaf theory where you give half away and keep half to pay your bills, but you got to, with this five year look back period, that's a problem. Just one thing that, you know, this is more, in my mind, ethical point, is that uh, when we put money aside, that money. Um, lots of times kids think, well, that's my money. I want to, I want to save all that money that mom has because that's my inheritance. That money is there to take care of mom. Mm -hmm. And remember, Medicaid, you know, I'm paying for that. So I'm paying for your mom's nursing care. You know, we're all paying for that. So it's a matter of trying to hide money and trying to skirt the system is not ethical, in my estimation, because you're making someone else who doesn't have much pay for your care, and you got this, you get this bank account, you that bank account, yeah. that stuff. So we just have to be careful as Christians that we're not jeopardizing our faithful stewardship status for the sake of $300,000. Yeah, well, well, like with tax planning, uh, it's legal to avoid taxes, it's illegal to evade taxes. So it, it depends on what the law requires. You don't need to pay a penny more than what the law requires, but you do need to pay every penny that it does. But um, well, that, that, I guess, is part of the question, you know. Do we just hand it all over, but at the same time, you know, is it fair that everybody else is in there and you're paying for them, and then, you know, for those who have not prepared, they're 
being paid for by those who have prepared, I just, you know, yes, is it Christian, is it ethical, are we, should we try to protect it, or should we just hand it over without a fight, I don't, if there are I don't know, the, if, if based on her circumstances, if there are legal avenues available, I would use them. But they got to be legal. Right. Yeah. Sounds like the only legal way to do it is to take all the assets that she has and buy a house that's worth that much money and make it come down. Yeah. I'm not saying that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and you got to. You get, yeah, you got to check too to see what the regulation of the week is too. I mean, that's yeah, uh, new. so. Somebody, uh, senior advisors or senior care advisors. I don't know, Jim. Do you know of any uh, senior care advisors? Elder care, yeah. Yeah, yeah, elder law. Elder law. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. Right, right. Glenn? Another thing speaking for people's mind too is we do the beneficiaries once in a while. There's someone there who is receiving some kind of welfare, Medicaid or whatever. Uh, we would put their share in a loose trust or something like that. Right. Yeah, there, there's. Yeah, you you need to review your state once a year just for a lot of reasons. That that's you know some of them. It's uh, uh, you know some people have died, some people have gotten divorced, others have changed. I mean, it just there's a lot of reasons to look at it, and it's getting more complex because you're right, beneficiaries need to be checked and the law needs to be checked. I mean, has anything changed? And we're getting we're getting a lot of change, especially with the government benefit issues and that type of thing. Oh, that's bad. I mean, then he gets sued as the driver, she gets sued as the owner, and everything's gone. You know, that's... Yeah, well, that's... A, they, yeah, yeah. That's why... Um, I never recommend putting... Uh, well, not never strong, but rarely recommend putting, uh, like, both, both spouses' names on car titles. Because then you get sued as you can get sued as the driver, you can get sued as the owner. Now, my car, if I get sued, only I can get sued. Sally can't, because she doesn't drive it much and she doesn't own it. And I don't own her car. My name's not anywhere near it. And um, 
So and we just you know try to protect yourself. But yeah, you got to be smart. You got to review and keep on top of the facts. No doubt about it. Yes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, if she goes into a nursing home, the um, uh, you know, and dies, it's going to uh, uh, she can get Medicaid because it's it's her house, it's her homestead, so it's exempt property, and she can get Medicaid and all the help that's available. So if she didn't have a waiver, it is possible. Yeah. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah. They do a claw. If it went through probate, you know, there'd be a clawback. And if she, um, but very often the deed is done in order to avoid having the uh, creditors of the child that you gave the property to come in and take it. That that's the the big issue on the ladybird is being able to undo it. And in her case, yeah, if she did, did it with a ladybird. It could be undone and uh, plan plan from there. But it gives options that you can use in planning. And if she put my name on her account and she has an issue with credit, can they come after me? Or that no, no. But if you have creditors, she they could grab your her money. That That's the protection there. You know, the, so, yeah, no, just having your name on a bank account is not going to add, add the creditor list. Yes. It seems like I've heard that your personal homestead is exempt and automobile. Mm hmm. What prevents people from buying a million dollar house or a, a Ferrari or a classic car that wouldn't depreciate like a Ferrari? And or a Porsche. Or, or Porsche. On your hat there, yeah, I noticed that. That's <laughs> Yes. But I, I mean, what, yeah. what precludes them from doing that? Because that seems like a perfect in-run. <laughs> well, yeah, no, nothing, nothing really. I mean, you can, um, you know, you, when you apply for Medicaid, you have what they call a snapshot date, and you look, uh, you div divide the marital assets at, at that point, and then what you do after that, you need a new roof on the house, use the uh, institutionalized spouses half to do that uh, type of thing. You can go out, and I've known people have gone on trips to Vegas, go out and hey, we lost a lot of money, but whatever, we're we're going to be filing here, and we need to spend down anyway. So you don't need to spend it responsibly, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's just a matter of it's gone. It's gone for an exempt function or purpose. And that's great. If, if, oh yeah. Well, how much is how much is a car worth? Is it? I mean, you could. A Ferrari might. Yeah. 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 Okay. That that would end up uh, in Michigan if it's sixty thousand or less. The car value is you can transfer it just with an affidavit. But you know, if you're talking about the Ferrari. Or the Lamborghini and a few other goodies. You know that's going to hit over that, well over that. <laughs> that would end up going through probate, but right? The house would not. House would not because there's special homestead exemptions. Yes. What is the minimum that a young family that currently has no will and 
them to commit debt free to do legally to protect and provide You'd have to get a lot of facts involved in that. Um, life insurance, yeah, that, that's probably one thing I'd look at. Um, but um, as far as how much to hide, people can plan, but things don't happen that way. Um, oh, yeah, because we had uh, one fellow that he swore that he was going to make sure his four sons were educated. So everything went to them. He got his wife to sign an agreement where she wouldn't contest against his will because he left everything to his kids, you know, to somebody for his, for his kids. And then he got shot and killed by an employee that wasn't happy. And so that meant that uh, nothing went to his wife and everything went to the kids, and they were all minors, and that would go into minor estates and probate and not be available. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it just really, you know, th if you don't die in the right order, things can get complicated. You know, if, that, if, if you're planning for it to go one way, you'd be surprised what happens uh, when it doesn't. But um, we were able to work around that um, if you are seen with your will recently before you die and it can't be found, it's presumed that you destroyed it. There's a case that says that. You can find a case for anything. And so that, I took that case to the court and his mother swore up and down that she saw him looking at her will a couple of weeks before he was shot. So based on that, the court said, well, fine, uh, he must have destroyed it. Therefore, he died intestate, he had no will, and the money goes to his spouse to help raise the kids. So, just basically undid his estate plan, but it, the facts were not as he thought they would be. So. What would you advise in that case? If, if uh, dad and mom die, black mother dies, and Junior finds the will and discovers that he's written out of the will, so he conveniently <laughs> It could. It could happen. So what would you recommend for a safeguard of that? Because then my intestate like Michigan Junior can see that. So what about backup copies and what like they keep a will and like like you're saying well, in a in a uh, safety deposit box. Well except a safety deposit box if when you die it gets locked up sometimes. You know, I keep it in a fire retardant box at home and keep the original. You can give copies away, but keep the original. And uh, there are also some cases that say that you can um, probate a copy of a will. I have done that because I drafted it. I was one of the witnesses to it. And um, the court accepted that, that copy in lieu based on the circumstances. So uh, it can be done, but yeah, no, it's... You get kids that get unhappy and uh, um, do, but you know, it's your will, keep it safe, keep it in there. But yeah, safe deposit box. Well, like the case that we almost had totally done, you know, all that was in a safe deposit box, but nobody even knew there's a safe deposit box there. And uh, so that's, that's not good. Nobody can break into your house, take your will, and spend it for anything. You know, it's, it's totally worthless in that perspective. Yes? What age 
Oh, the average age? Oh, you guys work with them. What? Well, the question is, at what average age do people do their estate documents? Yeah, yeah. Either it's either never or deceased. <laughs> you know, you know. No, you know, it's a situation where we recommend that if you're 18 or older, you should have your documents. If nothing else, it's to name the guardians of your children. That's your most important asset. Those kids. And that's the reason enough right there to have a will. I don't care if you say, and I have had people say, uh, I don't want my kids to have it. I'd rather have it go to the government. And so they have actually deed, uh, willed it to the government. You know, but you can do that and still provide. Uh, witnesses actually witness that being of sound mind? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. They said, no, I'd rather have it go to and I say, oh, nieces, nephews? No. They never come to see us. We don't like them either. So, but uh, I, I did persuade one person. Uh, he wanted his kids to get up when they were 65. And I per persuaded him to drop that to 55. <laughs> he didn't trust his kids either. But they didn't need guardians. But no, you're appointing guardians. I mean, that's, that is a very important function. It helps avoid family feuds over who gets the kids, how they're raised, are they going to go to Adventist schools or, or not. How do you do that? In a will? No, but I mean, how do you set that up? You mean as far as setting up wills and things? Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, either, either one of these two. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. You're going to talk? Okay, I want, uh, anybody have any additional questions? Yeah, that's an important subject. Why don't you talk about that? Okay, so um, for those who don't know, my name is Joel Nephew. This is Gene Hall. Um, I'm the director, and he's the associate for the Plan Giving Trust Services Department for the Michigan Conference. Most people have no clue that we exist, but that is changing. But what we do in that department is we help you with your estate plan. It's a benefit being a member of this uh, church that we will help you. Um, Vern used to do most of our documents, but he's trying to retire. And we're, and we're, 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 we're trying to let him retire. But we have uh, Patty McKinney that works out of Grand Rapids that helps us. But basically, if you do not have a will in place, you do not have power of attorney for finance or medical in place, those are three documents that we will help, with the we will help you get with the attorney's counsel. She'll draw out the documents but get in place for you and won't cost you anything, okay? Now, if you're saying, well, I don't trust you guys, and which, you know, yeah, it may be, um, I would just encourage you, find a local attorney and get it done. Now, that's going to cost you. It can cost you from anywhere from, we've had numbers from $600 to one person told me that they got it for $2,000. Uh, $5,000. So, you know, not all attorneys out there are as nice as Vern, Okay. Um, but uh, we can help you get that done. Now, you had mentioned about, you know, we get this with young families. We don't have anything. Well, do you have children? Yeah, we got, we got three, three kids. Well, you have something. Um, what you do not want is the state to step in and determine where your kids go. Okay? Now, the court may decide, yeah, they'll go to your folks, but in the process, where do those kids go? Foster care. Now, there's some good foster care parents out there. I'm not saying there's not, but there's a lot of bad ones too. Okay, so you don't want to put your kid in that environment for even a day. Okay, so you need those documents in place. Okay, in those documents also, you're going to be naming your 
the guardian for your kids, the, the uh, trust store for the children's trust that you're going to put in there. We will help you walk through all that information. What we do is if you contact us, we'll come, we'll spend about an hour with you pulling together the information. We'll get to the attorney. The attorney will then call you and have a phone consultation. Talk over everything that we talked over to make sure it's what you want still. Draw the, they'll draft the documents, send them to you, you proof them. Once they're proofed and everything's okay, we get them, we'll print them, bind them, and bring them to you for signing. Okay? So it's a service we provide. I encourage you to take advantage of it. Now, power of attorney for finance and medical, um, those are important documents as well. And, um, and lots of times, you know, young people don't think they need them, but, you know, when, with the HIPAA laws, especially with the medical HIPAA law, if you are not, you know, you're 18 years old, and you think, well, that's my son. Well, legally, the doctor can't talk to you about your son's medical condition. And you're on the outside looking in. And that would be pretty disconcerting as a parent. So even your young children, if they're 18 or above, you want to make sure that they get these documents in place. So if something happens to them um, in the medical situation, that you can be the one that is interceding for them. You can be their patient advocate. Okay? And then the financial one deals with your finances. If you get to a point where you, you know, whether it be your older age, dementia, or you get in a car accident and you're in a coma, who's going to take care of those financial decisions for you? So there's three documents that we encourage every member to have, and we are here to help you with that. If it's something you want, and Gene, we forgot to bring cards to fill out. But just talk to us afterwards or write on a piece of paper your name and your, your, um, your uh, contact information and we will be glad to contact you. Any questions? Yes? Do all conferences across the states have these services? We have kids out west. Many of them do, but there are, um, there are many of them that do not now because it's you know, it's an added cost for the conference to do this, and there's some conferences that have closed down their departments, but most of them do. Um, not, I mean, but you'd have to have them contact them to see what their parameters are for payment, because some, there is, you know, partial payments, things like this. But, but here right now, we still are doing it for you. We pay the attorney fees for you. A will? A power of attorney for finance, and a power of attorney for medical. Well, let's bow our heads for, for prayer as we close this seminar. Our Father in heaven, we realize that you own all things. You own us double by creation and redemption. And we just pray that you would help us to be faithful with everything that you have given to, into our hands and that. When you come, Lord Jesus, we'll hear that pronouncement, well done, good and faithful servant. So please guide us. Please help us. We pray for each family represented here that you would help them to be those faithful stewards. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.